Down to Business with Bobby Kerr. Brought to you by Bank of Ireland on News Talk. First up today, let's take a look at the business stories that are making the morning newspapers today. Joining me this morning in studio are journalist and legendary broadcaster Valerie Cox. And I'm also joined by Doug Keating, who's head of communications with Avalon. You're both very welcome. Thanks, Mandy. Thank you very much, Mandy. Now, guys, lots to get through this morning. Uh, Doug, I might start with you. The first big story, I suppose, that jumped out at us today was on the front page of the Irish Times. Coalition alarm over corporation tax take. The Exchequer returns show receipts from tax plummeted for a third month in a row, causing a lot of concern in government, isn't it? Yeah, I think it must be a little bit worrying because we've had such, uh, you know, high levels of corporation tax take and it's allowed the government... (laughs) You know, flexibility to to spend money and and do things that will uh, get people to vote for it. Um, looking at at the numbers here in October, exchequer returns were down forty five percent compared with last year. In September, down twelve percent. In August, down thirty six percent. So, quite a worrying trend. Um, according to the piece by Pat Leahy and and Laura Slattery, um, November is the month where you have the biggest. Uh, is the biggest month for payment of corporation tax returns. So there'll be a lot of focus on on what uh, that shows. But the piece also telling us that uh, corporation tax receipts were a massive twenty three billion uh, in twenty twenty two. And what really struck me there is that they'd actually were doubled since twenty nineteen. Um, and 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 the thing is, it's just a bit of a black box. No one seems to be able to explain to to you where this money's coming from. We seem to know it's from maybe ten or fifteen of the very big. Uh, FDI investors here, and it seems to be decisions they make in faraway boardrooms uh, around how they move their money and their profits around mm. can have a very dramatic impact on on Ireland's ability to finance its public expenditure. Now, Valerie, briefings that are coming from the Department of Finance are sort of pointing towards exports, in particular in the pharmaceutical sector, as the rationale for this. But it, the warnings that the government, Michael McGrath, have been making for months and months now, mm-hmm. finally coming home to us. If this continues, this has significant uh, consequences for the Exchequer and, and of course for politics, doesn't it? Oh, it does. And particularly interesting with the threat of a general election maybe happening earlier than 2025. Um, but the, um, I was just looking at the um, report from the IMF um, here. Ian Curran has a piece on that. And the IMF are saying that a better targeted budget package would have been less costly and what they're talking about here is their this is their regular health check on the Irish economy. And they said that the global economy is facing considerable external risks. But then overall, they said that the Irish economic growth was expected to moderate this year from a very high base. And that, I think, is what's scaring people that, you know, we're coming from a very high base. And how low are we going to go? And with all of these other things coming in, um, in various different sectors where there has been a decline in growth, you know, where do we stand? What are we going to do next? Um, the mission chief for Ireland in the IMF, Jan Sun, um, said the risks were not all on the downside, but more needed to be done to get these linkages going with the foreign companies so that maybe, uh, you know, we can minimise the risk of foreign uh, foreign tax. Yeah, and um, Doug, Valerie's referencing a piece there again in the Irish Times by Ian Curran. Better targeted budget package would have been less costly, says the IMF. But it is that uncertainty and retrenchment that Valley, Valerie mentions there that it would be of most concern, I suppose, to the future investment issue. Yeah, and I mean, I think that the IMF always speaks in quite diplomatic language. So what does it mean when it says 
you know, better targeted budget package. I mean, I think what it means there is we should start getting away from this, you know, one for everyone in the audience approach to uh, budgets where, you know, there's a fiver on pensions for everyone, there's a tenner on children's allowance for everyone or whatever it is. And we actually say there are sectors of our society that are really under pressure and really in need and we should, you know, focus the resources we have uh, more effectively. And, and, and I wholeheartedly agree with that, but it is makes for difficult politics. Uh, and, you know, a government, as Valerie says, going into a possible election year wants to uh, be able to point to as many people in the country that it can say, you know, I did this for you. So mm. I, I do think we have to be very careful, given this uncertain backdrop around the global economy where people don't seem quite sure where the cards are going to fall. Mm. Valerie, speaking of one for everyone in the audience, uh, we want to turn to another story now that's on the front page of the Irish Independent. It's by Fionn Sheen. RT wants taxpayers to fund nine million in pay rises for its staff. Uh, as a former RT uh, staff and, and stalwart, I, I suppose, four months on from this, uh, how do you see this story or where do you see things sitting now for them? Oh, I mean, where would the newspapers be without RT at the moment? Um, this, it's the thing that just keeps on giving. More and more keeps coming out. And sometimes, you know, it's the way things are written and the emphasis and so on. Um, when you say RT wants taxpayer to fund nine million in pay rises for its staff, this actually comes from um, the last letter that uh, G Forbes wrote to Catherine Martin, and she was looking for thirty four point five million, but pointing out that you know the the rise in pay that we're talking about the the nine million. Um, last year, RT actually agreed a three year deal with the unions. Um, for a 6% increase between 22 and 24. So they they agreed this, but they didn't actually have the money to pay it. And that's the point of this whole story, that even before these crises started, um, they were petitioning for money that they didn't have for pay rises that they couldn't guarantee, actually. No. Doug, just looking further into that story, um, and, and as Valerie referenced, it all centres around a letter from D Forbes to the minister. But the minister then does say that last month the budget uh, agreed 16 million euro for RTE as a, a kind of temporary stopgap and the media minister said that she would be prepared to provide RTE with an additional bailout of 40 million sub- subjects to being sat- satisfied with the forth- forthcoming cost-cutting plan. That's going to be a difficult ask for government, isn't it? Well, it is. But I mean, if we just step back, I mean, I think tonally I have a little bit of an issue with this story in terms of the way it's framed and RT begging letters and, you know, RT wants taxpayers to fund 9 million in pay rises. I mean, let's not forget, RTE is a, is a, is a state body, a lar- you know, largely funded um, through the licence fee. You know, we the, the government is no stranger to pay deals with staff. After all, it did its own 9.5% um, pay deal. You know, what the HSE every year runs out of money uh, and turns around and gets written a cheque. So, so, you know, RT is not the only organisation... Uh, run by the state that has no, no, had, but it is had, the it is the only organisation who has subsequently been revealed to have been an awful lot worse than it is and done things that have compounded the problem because now it's got a huge twenty million deficit for this year and potentially forty for next year. Yeah, but I mean, I think Archie is in an invidious position here where the government, you know, doesn't want to make the difficult decision. I mean, it can turn around and say, you know, Archie says. We, you know, we don't have the money to, 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 to fund voluntary, voluntary severance packages. Uh, the government doesn't want to own 
the issue of actually, you know, firing people or involuntary mm. uh, 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 redundancies. This report that the government commissioned makes, I think, a, a quite a clear point, which is RT needs support from policymakers either via a narrowing of its scope or through increased funding. At the moment, there is a mismatch between the two. And that, that is the reality. You know, RT is, is caught between a rock and a hard place of so being asked to provide all this content, but a government that won't actually properly yeah. fund it. Do I think you've hit the nail on the head there yeah. because, you know, it's a question of keeping RT as the very good station that it is at the moment. Absolutely. And even Leo Varadkar has said that, that he doesn't want to see a decline in the standards. And Kevin Backhurst is going around trying, obviously, to um, get people to take redundancies and so on. And there's not much of a take up on that. But if we look at even, you know, how RT is managing at the moment, and I mean, there's so much of the coverage, as you say, it's this type of thing. But if we look at the other side of it, look at what's happening in Israel and Hamas, and they've had um, correspondents out there. Um, they had Paul Cunningham out there for a few weeks, bringing us nightly fantastic coverage. And I mean, we've got to look at that uh, this is the, this is the flip side, but we have to look at where a lot of the money is going into providing very very good content, particularly in the news area. Absolutely, and yeah, fantastic coverage coming from from both of those gentlemen um, from that region, which must be tremendously difficult. Uh, but that that leads us to the funding model, I suppose, in a wider sense. And I'm just looking at a story in the Daily Mail by Ashley Maloney. Um, referencing the Taoiseach's comments on this, a household media charge harder to collect in light of the RT payments controversy. Valerie, so this is such a catch-22 situation. Yeah. Here we are. We know we need good news. We know we need good content, trusted news. Um, we got to do something to fix that model now. Uh, what is Leo Varadkar saying? Well, Leo Varadkar wants to see um, a media charge. I don't know how you'd put that, how you'd make it pay. I mean, the the uh, ordinary licence fee has gone down in the last year, in the last few months since this controversy broke. People are just not paying it. But I actually think it's not so much that people won't pay it, but they're holding on because they want to know in three months' time, is the government going to say, we're abolishing it? Oops, I paid it two months ago. I want my money back, yeah, you know. So, so that could be part yeah. of it, I think. But a household media charge is probably going to happen. It depends on how it's collected. I don't think it'll be in any way voluntary. Mm. It'll be something like the USC, you know, sneaked in into our paychecks. I think that's probably how they're going to have to do it. That, um, might, be, um, that might be the only way they can yeah, do it. I mean, yeah, I, th- I think uh, the licence fee is, you know, the model clearly, you know, it doesn't work and hasn't worked for a long time. It's, I mean, the non-payment rate now is, I think it was down 21%, the most recent recent figures. And I think you're right, Valerie, that the uncertainty makes people unwilling to pay. I mean, uh, look, I, I think we, we, we probably need to get more to a model where we say public service broadcasting is something that's valuable. We should fund it out of general taxation. We should stop dressing up in all these ridiculous different charges and household charges and voluntary charges and just pay for it. But also make sure A, RTE is reformed and runs itself better and B, that monies are also made avail- available to all the, you know, the other media outlets yeah. that do provide a high quality public service coverage so that we don't just see, you know, RT is a monolith that is the only provider of these this kind of content. Yep, so say all of us for sure. <laughs> I thought you might say that, Mandy. <laughs> Listen, I just want to um, go back to the economy a little bit um, and look at a story or an opinion piece, at least, by, by Cliff Taylor in the Irish Times. How will Sinn Féin's plan to tax the rich affect the economy? Doug, have you been taking a look at this for us? Yeah, I have. So uh, Cliff Taylor's column... Uh, for all his Irish Times readers that I suspect a lot of them are worrying about what a Sinn Féin government might mean. You know, if you're a high earner, Sinn Féin has, 
you know, clearly always indicated it's coming for you. Um, but as the column makes out, I mean, they have softened their cough a bit in terms of what they're threatening. So uh, previously they were talking about a 7% uh, solidarity levy on incomes over €100,000. It's now uh, a 3% solidarity level on incomes over 140000 uh, And there's also uh, mooted changes to tax credits that would also increase tax paid. I mean, for Sinn Féin, you know, this is good politics. I, I don't think a lot of very high income earners are going to vote Sinn Féin. Uh, and so, you know, this this is playing to the populist gallery that they play to. I don't think it's going to raise a huge amount of tax revenue. I also think that, you know, people who are paying over 50% marginal tax rate already on income over €44,000, I think we're a hugely highly taxed uh, already we have a very progressive taxation system, so so I th- you know I think this is bonkers, but I think it's good politics. I, th- well, I think the very unfair thing in uh, in the Sinn Féin ideas is to uh, want to increase the take from inheritance tax. I mean, inheritance tax is intrinsically one of the meanest, most unfair taxes we have. And we've had too many examples of, you know, especially with property prices going up, of families having to sell a family home you know, not being able to hold on to something that they've been left. And I actually think that is very detrimental to society. I think it's something that Sinn Féin will not get any votes But surely a a better, I mean, if you're going to tax anything, better to tax wealth uh, than income. So that could be inheritance tax. I mean, Sinn Féin's refusal to back uh, local property tax just makes absolutely no sense to me. I mean, it's a tax on, you know, people who who, who typically you know, have valuable houses are going to pay a lot more. It's instead wants to do it Yeah, I agree income. with you, but I don't think inheritance tax, I don't think that's wealth. This is something that maybe your parents have worked for for years and years and years, quite a modest house maybe, and they're leaving it to one child, say, because they've one child. And the next thing, it has to be sold to pay the inheritance tax. That is the most ridiculous situation. No, look, it's very emotive and I, I, get, I get where yeah, you're coming Valerie, from. Valerie, can I just ask you, um, just to move away from the tax side of things, just look at it a bit, little bit broader and I want to come back to the nub of Cliff's point in a minute, but you're a seasoned political observer. Do you notice... Um, that Sinn Féin are changing their narrative at all, that they're tempering their their language or that there's a there's a move afoot to change things or, or dampen things down on this side of things? Any? Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, I mean, even if we look at Mary Lou MacDonald, who I have to say is a past pupil of my husband, he taught her in school. <laughs> Did very well. Uh, but um, I, I do think, you know, they've become far less strident and they're trying to make their policies look just a little bit different from the main parties. Mm. And of course, the main parties are just as guilty because they've been stealing some of the clothing from Sinn Féin as well. But certainly, um, if you listen to what they're saying, and I think it's going to be very interesting now with the um, Fianna Fáil or Desh to see what's going to be happening. Are they going to take pot shots at Sinn Féin? Are they going to steal any more of their policies? Um, But yes, you're absolutely right, Mandy. It won't won't be a dull 12 months, that's for sure. Doug, just one final thing on this one. Of course, the point that that Cliff is making is that competitiveness could be affected by this. The tax base could be undermined by uh, their... Their, their their policies potentially, but that there's an unreality to ho- this whole debate really at the moment, you know, um, and that that's just going to go on now as we kind of go into election mode. Yeah, look, I mean, I think in fairness, you know, Sinn Féin have been very good at being specific and detailed in terms of their costing and their and their budgets. You know, they 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 are they they lay out the numbers and where the money's going to come from. I think as Cliff writes, they have clearly. Um, 
uh, sought to engage with kind of FDI investors and and not sort of frighten the horses there. Um, but it does seem that they're still out to you know this is the politics of punishment, punish the rich, you know, tax them a lot a lot more. Um, and look, I think it's coherent politically, but I'm not sure it's going to be good for the economy. Yeah, we'll have to see. Um, Valerie, one of the things you mentioned earlier was global um, um, effects and, and the economy and stuff. And one of the, the stories you'd picked out was from the examiner about Maersk, the massive shipping company. Do you want to talk us through what that said? It's quite extraordinary, really, because um, their profitability has gone down so much that they've actually had to let 6,500 jobs go. And their profit has gone, that's 10% of their headcount. And their profit has declined to 16%. I was very, by 16%, I was very interested in this because, you know, no matter where you travel, you're going to see these enormous fields full of these containers. I mean, and during the pandemic, it became an absolutely enormous business because everybody was buying online and shipping things. um, Well, according to their figures anyway. But I don't think it helped when the experts from Goldman Sachs came out And they warned, um, they gave a recommendation that people should sell their stock in Maersk. Mm. So, I mean, that certainly wasn't a very um, helpful thing to do. But they say that with their cutbacks, they're going to save 566 million this year. But at the same time, they say that there is an oversupply of vessels now building up on the market. People have got into the business. And now, apparently, road freight is far more profitable than sea freight now. Sea freight has become very expensive. And the Suez Canal and everything. I mean, we saw yeah, how they can lose lots of money in those situations too. Doug, this uh, global container industry would be a huge bellwether for um, the economy in general, wouldn't it? Yeah, so seeing th- these numbers, it I, must be. I, I think it's, what, what's interesting to me is, is, is this, so, so the, the shipping industry enjoyed a massive kind of boom during COVID. And so, you know, high profitability. So it's coming off, uh, that peak is whether this decision to to slash ten thousand jobs is Merce kind of reframing and and Correction, sort of getting no. its get, getting its profitability sort of back into shape, or is this as you say the canary in the coal mine that says actually you know the wider economy's slowing uh, and could 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 be a leading indicator of something more significant and I and I don't think that's a hundred percent clear at this stage but it's definitely one to watch. Okay, we definitely have to keep an eye on that one. Valerie, uh, Chef sacrifices Michelin star in affordability bids, so says Porik Hoare in the Examiner on the front page today. What were you making of this? Well, I think this is actually very good news. There's a Japanese chef, world-renowned, um, called Takashi Miyazaki, and he has a restaurant in Cork. Um, it seems to be called Ichigo Ichi on Shear Street, but I'm not standing over my Japanese pronunciation. Thank you for trying to pronounce that because I wasn't going to do it. <laughs> well, I chanced it. But um, he's actually got a Michelin star and his menus are very expensive. Um, you know, the set table about 145, 150 euro a person. But he suddenly decided he didn't want this anymore, that he wanted to be able to provide food that people, you know, food that would be normally priced, more casual, people can drop in and have it. And also he's taking issue with the cost of his ingredients that he has to fly in from Japan to even sake, he says. You know, there's so many Irma's on this food. So what he's doing is from January, now I've never been to his restaurant, I'm sure it's gorgeous, but he's opening this casual version from January and he's going to source all his ingredients locally. And he said, you know, I won't have a Michelin star, never looked for one anyway. And it's taking off the stress and the pressure because, you know, the Michelin star guys are women. 
they can drop in any time yeah. and check your menu. So he's getting rid of all that. I think it's a great lifestyle story. No, I, I, look, I, I agree. And I think there's a sort of fussiness to very high-end dining and Michelin star that, I mean, you know... There's something quite refreshing about somebody saying that actually... The Michelin star is not what I'm all about. I, yeah. I just want to serve people. Yeah, I want to... you know, ca- more casual, more accessible, higher, lower price point. And I think just maintaining the standards of a Michelin star, just the fixed costs of that are, yeah. are huge and and challenging. And, you know, and, and this guy's, you know, taking yeah, and control. And, and I think uh, he summed it up when he said it's about going back to fun. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm good for him. So we must try it, Valerie. We'll head, head down That's there. That's a date, Doug. Okay. A little road show for us all. <laughs> now, like for our next story, you might just take a little listen to this. That is, of course, the new release from the Beatles, which has been everywhere for the last couple of days. I think uh, the review here, you liked it, Valerie, didn't you? I loved it. I thought it was absolutely great. But it's very interesting where it's come about. Um, Jason Carty and Stephen Cockroft, they've been running a podcast on the Beatles. They're apparently Beatle maniacs. This is called Nothing Is Real. And the podcast is all about the Beatles. They present it and it's doing really, really well. And um, this is... This is um, an artificial intelligence song, if you like, that's been put together. Yeah. And it does sound so like the Beatles and so lovely. And it's kind of the uh, direction that the Beatles songs were going. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, could, you really could see that as their next song. I think it's great. Yeah, yeah. no, I hadn't heard it until until just played there. So I'm delighted to hear it. I mean, it, it's, it, it's... You must be the only person who has I know, it. I know. I've been living in a cave or something. <laughs> I mean, there's kind of a mournful air to it. But um, yeah, the jumping off point, obviously, was, was, was for this story in the Irish Times around this Nothing Is Real podcast, which you know, seems to be doing... Uh, great yeah. guns and and like good podcasts is now starting to get into being able to make money to advertise uh, doing live events exactly yeah, uh, they, they, and uh, the, you know the, the, I think one of them is a solicitor uh, from Northern Ireland I mean they're, they're just everyday fans who've turned their, their hobby into, into, into something that's yes. actually delivering so this story is again in the Irish Times it's by Laura Slattery and it's it's Beatles podcast mania as Irish made nothing is real near 3 million downloads which is extraordinary and those two chaps that you mentioned Jason Carthy and Stephen Cockcroft have a sold out event in the Sugar Club next week uh, where they're reflecting on the works of the Beatles. So that's an amazing success story. Yeah, and I suppose it's good timing for them, this this new song, this real Beatles hype at the moment. Absolutely. Now, uh, speaking of technology and all the pluses that it can bring, I don't know whether this is a plus or a minus, but on page six of the Irish Independent today, it says China reveals plan to build humanoid robot workers within two years. (gasps) Doug, what say you? Uh, well, look, I, I find these kind of stories pretty pretty terrifying. Um, but uh, yes, uh, the Chinese government investigating using uh, robots, talking about using them in farms, factories, um, uh, talking about using them in sort of difficult or dangerous to, to dangerous places or where, where work there's sort of safety issues. I mean, I do I do think uh, there's a broader issue here of is this really a good idea for China, whose economy is is slowing down and has problems with unemployment? If I was Xi Jinping. I don't think I'd be rushing to to get the robots to do the work. I think I might have a lot of people out on the street saying I'd, I'd actually 
like a job. Um, but look, you know, AI, robot, robots, you know, it, it is coming. Um, and there was that big uh, summit, I think it was in Bletchley Park last week, where a lot of these issues were being discussed. And Elon Musk seemed to think that, uh, you know, robots would take over the world and none of us would have to do a job again, which which I'm afraid... Unless, is, unless we wanted to. Yeah, I mean, I, it's a bit of a dystopia that I don't look forward to. And uh, anything that Elon Musk is in favour of, I, I tend to be go the other way. Yeah, Valerie, mm. what did you make well, of this? Well, um, first of all, I have an issue with the names they're giving these robots. Mm-hmm. There's three out there already, including the Tesla one, and they're called Atlas, Digit, Optimus. Now, I mean, you're not going to say, come here, Digit, make my dinner, or Optimus, whichever <laughs> hoover the house. Why can't they give them normal names? You know, maybe Irish names or something. But what I did think was interesting was that when Elon Musk was talking to the UK Prime Minister Rishi Sunak at the conference last week, um, he said he was talking about the shortage of robots in the beginning and all of that. But then he said, there's also a risk that the robots might chase us. But <laughs> <laughs> well, I suppose particularly this story coming in out of China, Doug, like when you hear China and technology, I don't know why, you're just immediately suspicious. Yeah, and you have to be worried about broader applications. I mean, it's mentioned in the article, but, you know, the military application of, of robots, uh, you know, is something you'd have to be concerned about. So, uh, and that's in a way that Bletchley Park Summit was getting at that big issue of how do we regulate this? How do we control this? And I think that that is important for us to, to, to really think carefully about that. Well, I'm afraid time is upon us, uh, folks. So we're going to have to leave it there. But my thanks very much to both Valerie Cox and Doug Keating, uh, Head of Communications with Avalon, for joining me today. Thanks, Thank Mandy. you both very much. Thank you very much, Mandy. Down to Business with Bobby Kerr. Brought to you by Bank of Ireland. Saturday morning at 11 on News Talk.